Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 65, Immortal. Today we pick up uh, pick up where we left off in the Turretin fan versus Ronnie debate on conditionalism or annihilationism. Uh, in episode 64, uh, Consuming Fire, we listened to Turretin fan's opening argument in which he tried to argue in favor of four points. Number one, that there's a judgment coming. Number two, that uh, the judgment is eternal. Number three, that the judgment is uh, con- uh, involves conscious suffering. And number four, that the uh, judgment um, will be experienced by some people. People. I might have gotten those out of order, but that was, I think, the four points that he argued for in his opening statement. Uh, then Ronnie Demler made his opening argument in which he argued, number one, that nowhere does the Bible ever say that uh, a human being will suffer eternally. Uh, Second, he argued that uh, immortality is something that's only granted to the saved, and so therefore, since the unsaved will not uh, live forever, they won't be able to experience conscious torment forever. And the third argument that he made was that the scripture plainly, frequently, and unequivocally teaches that unsaved people will be destroyed. Um, after that opening, Turretin Fan had his first 15-minute rebuttal, uh, and that was followed by Ronnie's 15-minute rebuttal. And it was at that point that we began cross-examination, um, and now it was there that we left off. So let's go ahead and move right back into the debate uh, with cross-examination between Turretin Fan and Ronnie Demler. Okay, we're going to move into cross-examination now. Uh, Ronnie will have 10 minutes to cross-examine Turretin Fan, and I'll go ahead and start the 10-minute timer as soon as you begin asking your first question, Ronnie. Alrighty. Uh, Turretin Fan, in Matthew 10:28, what does destroy mean there? When you say, what does uh, destroy mean, do you mean uh, that I sh- you, you want some uh I'm just asking you... Or- uh, uh, I, I suppose, what is the definition of destroy as used in Matthew 10.28? I mean, because the, the word could have a range of meaning depending on context, but what does it mean in the context of Matthew 10.28? Well, in 10.28, you know, there's not a lot of additional context. What it's, uh, the, it's a, you know, it's a aside as part of a, a larger discussion. In this aside, it says, fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And That's that right. So I want to know, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. Um, I, I know the passage, but what does destroy mean when, when in that second clause there? So he says, okay, people can't kill the soul, they could only kill the body, so fear him who could destroy both body and soul. What does destroy mean there? In this case, because of this in hell, which is this uh, you know, this place of punishment, uh, 
it, mean, it means to undergo the punishment. It means to receive this uh, hor- horrible, uh, horrible thing, which is word, which which you know, literally means destroy, and, and in the context that that destruction is the destruction of hell, which is this eternal one we, we know from other passages. So, okay, so you're not really exegeting Matthew 10:28. You're you're going to another passage. Um, I, I mean, I, I agree that it refers to what's going to happen in Gehenna. I, I fully agree with that. The question is, what is going to happen in Gehenna according to this passage? I mean, what yeah, does it mean? That, to I thought I answered that question, but to answer it again. The, the, okay, what, let, what let me let me go on. Then let me go on. Um, I, I mean, are you familiar with how the word is used uh, when it's used transitively in, in the synoptics? It always means something like to slay. So the way I see it, there's a very clear parallelism here. People could only kill the body; they can't kill the soul. So you should fear the one who could kill both. As a matter of fact, the words are related, but they're both part of the Apo word group. Um, I, I, I just feel like you're you're not telling me exactly what destroy means, other than to say, well, it just means the punishment in Gehenna. But that's not what destroy means. Destroy actually means something specific. Right. Is that a question, or I'm just I'm trying to. I'd like to answer a question if you have one. It sounds okay. like you're just trying to make an argument. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll move on. I guess your answer was that destroy there means to be punished in, in Gehenna. Uh, what does destroy mean in Second Peter two twelve? Let me pull up Second Peter two twelve. Sure. It says that these, as natural brute beasts, made to be taken and destroyed. Now, is that that is that the uh, destroyed that you would like me to to uh, examine, or is there? That's right. One? Destroy a form of destroy is actually used three times if you finish reading the uh, the passage there. Um, but it, but in any case, what does destroy mean there? Well, it means decay or corrupt. It refers to this. Uh, it refers to some kind of punishment that's going to come on them, and whether that's the a punishment in this life or in the next life. Uh, perhaps we could. Perhaps we have to, you know, look at a greater, a larger part of the, you know, the, the context to to determine that. I don't think so, because I mean, there's just a number of various examples that are being given here. The point is that. Peter actually compares the fate of these people to animals that are destroyed. So when it says that animals are destroyed, what does it mean? What does destroy mean there? The, in that case, it means to be slain or killed. Okay, and then the exact same word is used to describe what will happen to people, to these uh, sinners, I suppose. It's a stronger word that's used. It's a little more emphatic. It has the kata uh, prefix on it for the ones who will. Uh, they'll utter, you know, the King James puts it, and they shall utterly perish in their own corruption. Mm-hmm. So they'll receive something worse than than the death of brute beasts, which is connects us back a little to the Ecclesiastes three passage. Uh, moving on, uh, let's see. This is kind of a. Um, actually, I'll just ask you this. So, do you, you agree with the Westminster Convention when it says that souls neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence? Right. 
Okay. And you you try to use Ecclesiastes, I believe, to show that. Um, what makes you think that Ecclesiastes is talking about a soul? In the way you define it, the way I'm sure Westminster Confession is, is using it in the passage I quoted. Well, the uh, let me let me, make sure, let me pull it up in front of me, make sure I quote it accurately. It says the uh, spirit of the beast, the spirit of man. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, that's the reason I think that it's talking about our spirit or soul. Um. Oh. Okay. Um, I'll leave that one alone then. Unquenchable fire. Now, what did you think about what I had to say about what scripture says about unquenchable fire? Have you changed your view? You, you seem to be saying that unquenchable fire means or implies, I guess, fire that burns people forever or, or something like that. Um, fire that can't be put out. Fire that can't be put out. That's right. It can't be resisted, in other words. Okay, so uh, we're, we're in agreement on that now. Um, can you show me a place in Scripture that actually connects Gehenna, or hell, with torment? Well, let's see. Uh, I think the way to, the, the best way to connect it to that is that it's... Uh, in the passages we just, this, there's not a lot of places, as you, I'm sure you know, where Gehenna is mentioned in the, as such in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. A lot of those verses where it's mentioned are the ones I already presented, especially the passage about where it's repeatedly used in, uh, I believe it was in Matthew, uh, excuse me. It was the one in which, uh, Matthew 8, I want to say, 18, where it's described as having, uh, where it's described as having fire. So the, the idea is that fire is something that's unpleasant and tormenting, and, uh, and that's why we would view Gehenna as an unpleasant place to be, a place of torment. Okay, so taking this back to Isaiah then, fire and worms are mentioned there. Um, do they indicate torment in Isaiah 66? Well, it's not, it isn't yet clear in Isaiah 66 that these are people who, who are not merely corpses. In fact, it's described as the, not as the men, but as the carcasses of the men, which suggests That's right. So can, can carcasses, okay, so can carcasses experience pain or torment? Carcasses cannot. Okay. So I'm a little curious. Why would you assume that when Jesus literally quotes that passage, that all of a sudden he's talking about worms and fire that torment, when that's not at all how it was used in Isaiah. Well, the reason we would think that is that the is that we understand that those who are in this next life are being punished, and that that in fact the the dead who sinned against God will be resurrected. So these other passages, which inform us of the nature of the afterlife, and inform us of the fact that that the wicked will also be resurrected, which inform us that these are not merely uh, not merely corpses, and and as well, I mean, the the fact that it says the body and soul will be in, in hell is enough is enough of a reason to expand beyond Isaiah 66:24. Carcasses don't have souls, for example. 
in other words, beyond the literal letter and into that, viewing that as the, as the, the prophecy and not as a, that's the final revelation. Okay, so again, you're, you're, you're drawing on other passages that you think refer, I suppose, to torment, and you're using those to interpret these passages. Um, is, that, is that what you're doing? Am I misrepresenting you here? Right, yes, and, and letting the more clear passages eliminate the less clear passages. Okay. Okay, um, Ronnie. Th- yeah. yeah, that finishes um, your first uh, cross-exam period. So as soon as you start asking your questions, I'll begin the 10-minute timer. Okay. Uh, my first question is this. Do you... Uh, is it your position that those in in the afterlife will not suffer? Is that your position that these these words that talk about destroying and killing and so forth that they indicate an absence of suffering? No. Okay. So, in terms of the point, the the four points that I had raised that there's a judgment coming, that it will be uh, an eternal judgment, that it will be a conscious judgment, that some will that will, some will suffer this this punishment. Your points of disagreement really are as to the eternality of it and as to the consciousness of it, but not as to the the fact that some will experience it and that they will suffer and that there's a, a judgment coming. That, that's exactly that right. That's right. Okay. So in Matthew 25:46, we're told explicitly that these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous unto life eternal. How do you interpret everlasting punishment in Matthew 25:46? I, I take it as far as the text takes it. It's a punishment that will last forever. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you also agree that they will have any, an, uh, an everlasting punishment, but you don't believe that punishment will be torment? That's, that's exactly that- right. I mean... That's possible. That passage leaves open the possibility. The point is that that passage doesn't torment the nature of the punishment, but it just says everlasting punishment, which I agree with. I'm not saying that that passage positively teaches that it won't be torment. It doesn't say that either. In Second Thessalonians 1.9, it says, Who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power? How do you interpret the, that expression, everlasting destruction? Uh, same way. It's, it's a destruction that will literally last forever, as opposed to a temporary destruction. And so it is important for Paul to say everlasting. So if I can make an analogy, um, let's take the destruction of the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, they were destroyed, but that destruction is not eternal, because it's going to be reversed at the resurrection. Then they're going to get another shot, as it were, um, you know, depending on various factors. Well, let's let me ask you this: What's the difference sure. between a, a final destruction and an everlasting destruction? Is there any difference? I suppose it would be, depend on what you meant by final. Um, the way people normally use those words, I would say that there's no difference. If by final you mean permanent, something that will never be reversed, then in that sense that they would be more or less synonymous what if everlasting modifies the 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 act of destroying in other words the destruction is a destruction that has a beginning but has no ending that that process of destroying continues forever what what if the process rather than the result 
is what's mod- what, what's that, that term everlasting is modifying. Would that change yeah, your view? Yeah, it would. It would. I, I think um, if the clearly if the text clearly described a process of destroying rather than destruction, um, then that would count as evidence, I suppose, in your favor. I mean, it doesn't say torment. That, that would be an inference. It, it would be a reasonable inference. I'm not saying that would be unreasonable. Um, so that would work in your favor, I think. But as it, as it stands, it does not say that. It refers to destruction, which is a noun, which is a state. It's not a process. And uh, the point of it being a... Uh a noun is simply a grammatical point. Is that correct? Uh, I, I, I suppose. Um, I suppose that's a good way to put it. I mean, I'm just trying. I'm trying to take the text at face value here. I'm trying not to read anything into it. Um, it says that the destruction is everlasting. It doesn't say anything about the process of destroying will, will be everlasting or anything like that. I mean, I suppose that's a possible read, but someone would have to show me why that's a plausible read or why we should take the text that way. As one example of why we might take that text that way, consider with sure. me First Timothy six nine, okay. and I'll, I'll begin reading it. If I don't know if you have a text there in front of you, but yep. the the text says, "But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare." And many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Uh, Would you agree with me that there's a similar construction between the uh, men falling into the temptation and snare and drowning in their destruction and perdition? I I, I could go with that. the only trouble I'm having is I'm looking at the NASB and it, it uses it a little bit differently. But you, you go ahead and ask your, your next question. Uh, l- let me look up in another translation while you're asking your next question here. Okay. And uh, Hopefully it's the, a little similar to the KJV. Well, the, the, the follow-up is this, this destruction or this temptation is uh, also a noun temp- and a snare. Uh, is also a noun, but yet this, uh, these nouns are, are describe acts. Mm-hmm. And acts, okay, right? I, I I suppose I see what you're saying. Um, I'm sorry, I, I don't mean to interrupt you. If you want to ask a question, no, no, no. So that, that's doesn't that provide a basis that that destruction is a noun that describes an act and uh, similar, similar to the fact that things like temptation describe an act. I mean, I, I don't disagree. I don't disagree that it, it could. I mean, some people call this a noun of action, for instance. But it's also the case that if you know you and I look over a destroyed city, I could say, look at the destruction. In which case, it would be a noun. So people will be punished with everlasting destruction, destruction that lasts forever. Um, I would say that if Paul wanted to indicate a process, he would have worded it a different way. But what would be a way that would be acceptable as a way of describing it as a process? You would need to use a participle? or um, Possibly you could change the tense, or God will punish them by making them undergo an everlasting process of destruction. Now, I understand that sounds cumbersome, and Paul probably wouldn't say something exactly like that. Um, I mean, at the very least, I would say that this one is inconclusive for either of us. 
Um, okay. Uh, yeah. What? Is, let's turn over to Jude. Jude one sure. uh, seven, or really just Jude seven, because it's only one chapter. Right. The uh, that that passage speaks of eternal fire, and it speaks of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's right. What? How do you? And it speaks of them being set forth as an example. Now, mm-hmm. what does eternal fire mean? If uh, in in this uh, in this context, how, how does eternal mo- does eternal modify fire? I think so. I think so. And how is the fire that that burned Sodom eternal? I would say that it's eternal in its effects. And this is an observable rule about how certain nouns are used um, in in New Testament Greek. Um, and, and this is a, I mean, this is a point that a number of traditionalist commentators concede. I mean, yeah, we need to look at, you're asking a good question. This is a question for everyone. How was the fire that destroyed Jude eternal? Because clearly it is referring to the fire that destroyed Jude. That's the example that is set forth for us, right? That's the thing we could see. And so the question is, how is it eternal? I would say it's eternal in two senses. One in that its effects were eternal. It destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah forever. Um, which is a point, for instance, that Jonathan Edwards makes. Um, and also it's eternal in the sense that it's, in, it's in a way an extension of God's fire, the kind of eternal, eternal burning fire of God. You know, the fire was said to come down out of heaven. I think that's saying that it's coming directly from God in a way. God's etern- eternally burning fire. Okay, uh, very briefly, you, you whetted my curiosity when you said in your sure. opening statement that there's only two verses which could indicate it. What, which are the two verses which you thought might might indicate it? Uh, yeah, so these would be kind of the big two that, that come up in these debates quite frequently. It would be Revelation 14.11 and Revelation 20.10. Okay, and, and uh, I think that, that pretty much exhausts my time for this cross-examination, so thank you very much for your answers. Okay, uh, Ronnie, if you are ready to go and don't need a break, I'll go ahead and start the 10-minute timer for your second round of questions. Um, okay, uh, Turgeon fan. Uh, now, w- do you agree that an everlasting destruction in the sense that I mean it would be an everlasting punishment? Or do you think that's false or maybe strained? Or I think it's strained because I think that the uh, – I think – the the ver the, the adjective is, is really more naturally describing the the process as opposed to describing the result. But uh, I, I'm not sure how the uh, well. Anyway, I, I, I'll leave it at that. I don't want to argue. Okay. Okay. Um, here, here's kind of a more speculative question, but. Why do you suppose that the book of Acts never records the apostles mentioning everlasting torment in any of their preaching? Uh, clearly, it was not uh, not not a priority. I, I, there's not really, a, presumably, any other answer we could give as to why the Holy Spirit right. mentions something in one place and not another place. I understand it's speculative. I mean, uh, now, if... If it were true that there is this prospect of, of literally suffering horribly forever, um, wouldn't you think that that would be a priority? I mean, for instance, it seems to be a priority, say, for, for street preachers or, or evangelists today because they think it's true. And for, for most people, that's obviously something important to at least mention. I mean, you don't need to necessarily focus on it, but it's not mentioned at all. 
Um, and let me kind of build on that question. Um, I mean, why do you suppose Paul never mentions everlasting torment in any of his letters? I mean, I guess the closest we have, in your view, would just would be this term everlasting destruction. Um, but why do you suppose Paul or, or the preachers in Acts never just said something very simple like, if you don't repent, you will be tormented horribly forever? Well, I, I mean, there's a, there's a variety of possibilities aside from, as you said, Second uh, Thessalonians does talk about the punishment with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. But, but even leaving that aside, the the absence of eternal life may be a strong enough incentive in, in for the purposes that Paul had, and the Gospels already address the matter. I do agree with that, with the first part, that the prospect of uh, everlasting life is enough. Um, so we, we've gone over Gehenna. Uh, going back to eternal fire. Now, you mentioned eternal fire, I believe, as used in Matthew. Um, and at one point you said something along the lines of, this is a rough quote, um, how how fire requires fuel and you know worms require a host and so forth. So, you know, if the person burned up, then how could we say it's eternal fire if it, if it ends after the person burns up or something like that, right? Yes, that, something like that. Yeah. Now, uh, so, so the image, you know, the images is of people being thrown into this eternal fire. Say that's in Matthew twenty five forty one. They enter the eternal fire. Now, is the fire burning before before people are thrown into it? That's that is how it looks in. Uh in something in the image like the lake of fire image it doesn't it it wouldn't look like that in the isaiah 66 image of course yeah i I, I think i think so i agree with you it does look like that so if the fire is burning before people are thrown into it i I don't see the problem with saying that the fire will keep burning once there's no one left in it there seems to be this assumption that well if the fire keeps burning then the people in it must be around forever to to suffer or something like that but if it could burn without people in it before they're thrown in it, why can't it keep on burning with without people in it after? I think that uh, I, I certainly concede that a fire that is burning before people are put in could continue to burn after there is no more people in it. I don't I, I don't think that that people could experience uh, experience that forever if they are consumed at some point. So yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. They could not if they were consumed. So let's let's talk about consumed. Um, I, I mentioned a number of passages that clearly seem to teach that people will be consumed. Um, Hebrews 10.27 is a good example. Um, so I'll just ask you directly, will God's adversaries, per uh, as mentioned in Hebrews 10.27, be consumed? They will be consumed in the sense that that passage is describing, and that sense mm-hmm. is the sense that those people will be eternally tormented in hell. That's the that's what that's a reference to, which is not the not the literal sense of consume. I, I fully I fully uh, concede that point. So what 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 in the context of of, of Hebrews ten twenty seven leads you to think that uh, the consume there is not is not literal? Uh, well, I, it's not coming from the immediate context of that of that passage. Um, okay. At least uh, I, I should step back. I haven't closely examined the 
the immediate context. My comment was not based on the immediate context of that passage. But, uh, you know, if I looked at the passage, it's possible there's something in there, but I, I, I certain, that's not my basis. That's what I'm saying. Okay. Um, let me find a few more questions here. Um, you mentioned, oh geez, I'm getting mixed up here with my notes. Torment. You, you mentioned something at the end of Revelation where the angel tells John, let uh, the wicked still be wicked and so forth. And, and you indicated that you think this is referring to wicked people after judgment. Um, in, the, in the context, and just I guess I'm just saying correct me if I'm wrong, this is kind of an open-ended question, but in the context, the angel tells John not to seal up the prophecy, and then he kind of gives the reasoning of why he's saying that, saying let the wicked still be wicked, let the righteous still be righteous. The, the, the people being spoken of seem to be contemporaries of John. I, I don't see any indication. So in other words, the, the vision is kind of over. You know, there's no longer this uh, eschatological component. This is just a message that the angel is telling John. I mean, uh, am, am I wrong there? Yes. The, which, what it says is, and he said unto me, seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is that... <laughs> The time is at hand. Then the passage that I said, that I quoted about he that's unjust, let him be unjust still. He that's filthy, let him be filthy. Righteous, righteous, holy, holy. And behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. That's what ties it to the final judgment. So the, this, uh, this, this judgment is the continued, includes this continued justice or injustice and uh, righteousness or un- unrighteousness. Okay, let me get maybe a few more questions here. Um, on your view of, of everlasting torment, will uh, will justice ever be satisfied? Uh, the, uh, ju- you would divide that just that question in the sense that justice will be satisfied in that sentence will be passed. Justice will never be fully satisfied in that the, the sentence is in a sentence of eternal, uh, both for the, is, is eternal, both for the righteous and for the wicked. So the eternal life That's will never be fully, uh, fully received by the righteous and the eternal destruction will never be fully experienced by the wicked. Okay, good. So, so justice will, will never actually be fully satisfied. Um, in that sense, yes. But not in, but in the sense of the sentence, it will be. So that's why I said it needs to be divided carefully. Yeah. Um, you you mentioned so going back to the passage in, in Revelation 22. Um, so you believe kind of people will forever be rebelling against God. That's right. It says in verse 14. Okay. I'm, I'm sorry. Let me catch you. I don't, I don't have much time here. Yes. I'm sorry. <laughs> Can I yes, let me move on to kind of my follow up? Um, yes. Okay. I understand. So um, so then on your view, um, sin will will always exist. Yes. And evil will always exist. Evil, I, I should of course explain that sin and evil are privations, not mm-hmm. positive. They don't have positive existence, but sinners will always exist, and they will continue. As far as we know, they will continue to to be sinners. Good. So, uh, would it be correct to say that, on your view, sin, evil, pain, uh, suffering, and misery will always be part of God's creation? A good God's creation. Would that be accurate? Yes. 
Okay. And one last question, if I have time. Um, just curious what your uh, what your impression is. If ha- have any of my arguments uh, seemed, uh, let's say, contrived or ad hoc? Yes, the, specifically your argument that there's no statement that there's ever that that the, there's no explicit statement that there's everlasting conscious torment seems contrived in that there's everlasting punishment. And this punishment involves torment in different passages. The, the explicit statement is rather – sounds as contrived to me as the statement that there's no explicit statement that, uh, of the definition of the Trinity in the scriptures. Uh, we, can, we can construct the, the doctrine without well, having I'm, the explicit that, definition. That, 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 running, you're running your time's out. Your time's out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I'm not trying to be – I'm just trying to be a good moderator. Um, uh, okay, so Turretin Fan, if you're ready to go, I'll go ahead and start your 10-minute timer as soon as you start asking your questions. The uh, the question that I, that I have for you first is with respect to uh, Gehenna and Hades in, in the New Testament, those are the two Greek words that are in the authorized version translated hell, which somewhat obscures the fact that there's two different Greek words underneath. Uh, do you is it, is the position you're taking in this debate that those two words are not equivalent words and that this is uh, potentially misleading uh, you know, use of the of the same word to translate those two words or do you agree with those? No, that, that's that's trans- definitely yeah that's definitely my view that that was a mistake to to translate them. I think it's a mistake to translate them at all. I think they should both be transliterated, but okay. that's not what you're asking. So, do you agree that both Hades and Gehenna are described as places of fire? Yes, uh, Hades, I would say just once in the parable in uh, Luke 16. In that parable in Luke 16, that fire is also associated with torment, isn't that correct? That's exactly right. So in, in Luke 16, we have someone who's in Hades, who's in the fire, and that fire is described as tormenting that person. Is that correct? Yes. And there's uh, no description of any end in sight for that person's suffering. Is that correct? That's right. It never describes there being an end. Does there, is there any description in scripture of suffering uh, in the afterlife which, where, where it's stated that this suffering has an end? In in those words, or or in similar words, in similar words, um, I, I would say yes. I would say every passage that speaks of destruction. But if if the op, if there's an option that destruction could be something that goes on indefinitely, if that's an option, then those passages don't uh, don't teach that this destruction has an end. Is that correct? Yeah, I would that's agree. That's within if, the semantic range. Yeah, yeah, that's right. If those passages actually did teach destruction, didn't actually mean a literal destruction, but rather, like I guess, a type of suffering, then that would be right. Okay, and uh, all right. Let me uh, let me go back quickly over my notes. This uh, you you had made the point. 
that uh, Jude 7, and I'm, I'm sorry to harp back on this same passage, but mm-hmm. it, it seems to be an important passage. Yeah. It speaks of this, the Sodom and Gomorrah and receive, are set, then being set forth at, for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. And you had made the point that this judgment will actually be reversed. This judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah will be reversed. So in, in what way do you see that, uh, that judgment as, uh, eternal? Well, I, I, I gave two reasons for why it would be eternal. Um, one was that it, it doesn't say that the, the judgment is eternal. It says that the fire is eternal. But what I had said about the fire was that it's eternal in the sense that it comes from God, um, who's, who's spoken of as a consuming fire. And then it's eternal in the sense that the effects of that fire were permanent. In other words, Sodom and Gomorrah were, were never rebuilt. The uh, the the passage actually says that the people giving themselves over to fornication, going after strange flesh, are are set forth uh, for an example, and, mm-hmm. and so it's the people of the cities. It's not the buildings of the cities that are in view. Is that correct? Uh, I think both are in view. As a matter of fact, it says just the Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities. Um, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, right? Yeah, I, I, I would just say, in, in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, the, both the city was destroyed and the people were destroyed. But the point of this passage is talking about the people being destroyed, right? I, I think so, yeah. And these people suffered the vengeance of eternal fire, and yet, these are people who are going to be resurrected on the last day. That's right. right. That's right. So... Uh, in terms of this fire being eternal because it's from God, can you think mm-hmm. of another example where the ter- this term eternal doesn't doesn't describe the duration of the thing that it's modifying, the, the noun that it's modifying, instead describes some some other uh, the, the the source of the of the noun. Uh, off the top of my head, no. I mean, it, it was a more extended argument that the fire is from God and that God is an eternally, um, is, is an eternal creature. But, I'm not going to stick much on that argument, but go on. Okay. Uh, Ecclesiastes 3 talks about the spirit of the beast that goes downward to the earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, are, are you a conditionalist with respect to animals? Uh, no, because conditionalism is short for conditional immortality, and I, I don't think any animal will have immortality. Um, I, I guess so, I'm a conditionalist. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. So unconditional. Go ahead and question. So you're just an unconditional annihilationist with respect to animals? Yes, I, I don't believe animals will be, will be raised, in other words, at the resurrection. Okay. Do you, do you agree that all men, uh, uh, without exception, will be raised on the last day? Yes. Based on the, okay. Yeah. The, uh, the passage that speaks of the resurrection unto life and the resurrection unto damnation. Mm-hmm. Do you, uh, that, that term damnation there refers to judgment. The, is it your, uh, is it your 
is your chronology such? It wasn't clear to me from your, your, your constructive, so I apologize for asking a dumb question. Was your chronology such that these people who are, uh, who are already dead, rise from the dead, undergo sentencing, and then die uh, a second time in the sense that they're, they no longer, their souls no longer see, you know, exist or no longer experience anything, and their, uh, their bodies uh, are dead bodies that, just as they would be you know, in this life? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So you have a lot of people who died without ever really being punished for their sins, other than maybe punishments they experienced while living. Um, and so you have all these dead people that can't be punished because they're dead. And on the last day, God will punish all men and judge them according to their deeds. And their punishment will so, correspond according to their deeds. So how does the rich man's punishment in uh, Hades fit into that framework? Oh, I, I don't think that parable is a true story. So, so it doesn't fit at all. What, what is it? Uh, what, what is it representative of? Uh, I wouldn't say that the setting is representative of anything. I would say that Christ chose a setting that his listeners were familiar with. That was a, a, actually a common story that was used, and Christ used that setting to make some other point. But um, I, I wouldn't take any of the descriptions. Um, about the intermediate state in that passage literally at all. Oh, okay. So mm-hmm. do you, uh, does the scripture ever, uh, disavow the idea that the, that those in Hades are consciously tormented as described in that story? Uh, definitely. Yeah, as a matter where, of fact. Where does it say that they're not consciously tormented? Uh, where does it say that dead people are not consciously tormented? Now, I'm going to give, just off the top of my head, we'll have to look these up later. Um, this is one thing I forgot to write down. Um, but there are a number of passages in Ecclesiastes that say things along, something along the lines that the dead know nothing. Um, in the Psalms, and we're kind of getting off topic, this is about the intermediate state, but it's fine. Uh, David says, um, you know, in Shale, who will praise you? Um, who will sing your praises? Now, that's a silly question. If there is a conscious intermediate state, the obvious answer would be, well, the righteous dead will praise you in Sheol. But he says, no. There's another passage that says, in Sheol, there's... Um, actually, I'm going to mangle that one if I try to quote. I'm sure I'm mangling them as it is. But um, this would be an interesting other debate about the intermediate state. But When you when it says that the... Uh, if I still have time running, I don't know if I'm out of time already. But if, uh, if there's time for one last question, when it mm-hmm. describes that Hades and uh, death are thrown into the lake of fire, mm-hmm. how do you interpret that? I interpret it the way I think many traditionals interpret it, as saying that death and Hades will be destroyed, that there'll be no more. There'll be no more death, and there'll be no more intermediate state. Uh, I, I guess it looks like we're out of time, but um, that's how I would interpret it. Which leads me. I don't mind if you finish your answer. If there was more you wanted to say, yeah, um, that's all I would say. That it, that it means death will be no more. Um, yeah, that's I guess the short okay. answer. Yeah. All right. Now, just as a disclaimer, um, I'm gonna do. I, I I did my best to prepare some questions on the fly, because two questions that were sent in to me by listeners for turret and fan, I don't think really apply any longer, and and I'll I'll apologize to them and explain why later. So I've had to prepare some on the fly. Um, but with that disclaimer out of the way, um, let me go ahead and present my first question to Ronnie. Ronnie, you argued in your opening 
that Matthew and Jesus utilize Malachi's burning up of the wicked, reducing them to ashes beneath the feet of the righteous, and thus hell is not uh, eternal suffering, but utter irreversible destruction. And then, of course, similar arguments are made with respect to New Testament authors' use of Isaiah's contemptuous rotting corpses with their undying worms, smoke rising forever from the destruction of Edom, as well as other allusions to Old Testament passages. Now, here's my question. In light of the doctrine of progressive revelation, why, as some traditionalists claim, will conditionalists refuse to allow those authors of the New Testament to utilize Old Testament imagery flexibly to communicate something above and beyond what that imagery may have originally communicated? Oh, I'm open. I'm open to New Testament authors doing that. I just don't think that they, in fact, did that. So, um, I mean, an example of doing that with the worms and fire would be um, the book of Judith that, you know, Protestants don't believe is inspired. But um, there's a passage in Judith that says something along the lines of, um, and worms and fire will be put into their flesh and they shall feel the pain forever. Something along those lines. So there, uh, you know, the author Judith is clearly using worms and fire to indicate conscious torment. I mean, that would be an example of an explicit statement of conscious torment that we don't find in the New Testament. Um, so I'm, 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 I'm open to them taking Old Testament imagery and reinterpreting it. I just don't see any indication that they've done any such thing. Jesus, for instance, all he does is quotes Isaiah word for word. Um, he doesn't quote Judith. Um, and Jesus never uh, conjoins worms and fire with suffering. Um, again, you have to come into those passages already thinking, oh, worms and fire signify suffering. Um, but that's just brought into the text. That's not taken from the text. Okay, Turton fan, your one-minute response. Well, that was one of the points that I had tried to uh, raise in answer to the question about Isaiah 66, namely that, for example, uh, this is applied to people with souls in in the New Testament, but uh, to that we could add that the the, metaf- the the description in Mark 9 is of people entering this place whole and uh, that they, they have this physical integrity in, in this place that, into which they go. And it's added that this is hell, Hades, whereas in Isaiah 66 there's no explicit indication that this is uh, – that this, this place is a place of uh, – th- that it is Hades that it's being referred to. Okay, uh, Turretin fan, my first question for you is is this. In a recent lecture he delivered at Lanier Theological Library, Edward Fudge pointed out that the Old Testament says of the wicked that God will break them into pieces and shatter them like clay pots in Psalm 2.9, will slay them in Psalm 139.19, and will tear them to pieces in Psalm 50.22. It says it will be like chaff blown away in Psalm 1.4 and burnt up like chaff and reduced to ashes beneath the feet of the righteous in Malachi 4.4. It is also said that they will be like a slug that melts away in Psalm 58, uh, 58.8, dreams which disappear when one awakens in Psalm 73.20, and Psalm 37. Says they will wither away like grass and be no more, perish and vanish like smoke. Now, in light of the fact that many wicked people are not torn, broken, shattered, and burnt up in this life, how should we understand these passages? We can understand these passages as statements of many statements of extreme punishment of the most serious kind. First of all, in that way, and second of all, they will be completely removed from the presence of the Lord in the afterlife, completely cast out of New Jerusalem. There won't be any of them, as Revelation 22 uh, indicates, uh, which which I'll probably address a little more in the conclusion. 
Okay, Ronnie, your one-minute response? Um, well, I would just say we should try to get a little more information about what these passages are trying to communicate. Um, they, they all sound like the same thing. You know, a slug that melts, a dream that ends, pottery that's destroyed into pieces. The, the, the whole point seems to be that these things will be no more, um, rather than just kind of a very general statement about, oh, the, the punishment's going to be really bad. And the point also seems to be that, um, again, t- torment doesn't really ever seem to be in view, or at least long periods of torment. It just seems to be an expression that the people will be gone, that they'll be completely destroyed, which is totally consistent with what the New Testament teaches. Okay, uh, Ronnie, my second question for you is this. Your argument has in part rested upon the issue of immortality, and since this is only granted to the saved at the resurrection, the wicked cannot be said to go on living forever. Some traditionalists respond by saying that death means separation of soul from body in the first death, of man from God in the second, and so indeed only the saved are granted what the Bible calls eternal life, while the wicked are separated from God, thus dead, forever. How do you justify your position's understanding of death as something other than simply separation? Right. Well, death is not separation. Um, death entails separation, or death is caused by separation. But when a, let's say you're a dualist, when you say a person dies, what you really mean is that the body died. You don't believe the whole person died because the real person is actually still alive. Um, and so, I mean, if you're a dualist, if you're talking about death, actually, if anyone's talking about death in Scripture, death refers to the the lack or the, the privation or the absence of life. That's what that's the essence of death. Um, so I, I don't see how making that distinction gets the traditionalists anywhere. If both the body and the soul die in Gehenna, well then neither of them will survive. Um, going back to immortality, I, I try to stay away from uh, passages that talk about eternal life because I do believe eternal life that that expression can be used as a technical expression to refer to a certain quality of life. Um, but if you look at the examples I gave, they're all examples of Paul using an expression, immortality, which literally just means uh, deathlessness or incorruptibility. So if only the righteous receive immortality, that means that the unrighteous will not receive immortality, that they won't be deathless and that they won't be incorruptible. In other words, that they will corrupt, that they will rot, and that they'll return to the dust. So, uh, Turretin fan, your one minute response? I think you've struck upon part of one of the key issues, which is we are told in scripture that Christ died for our sins, the uh, just for the unjust. That death was not the uh, complete extinguishment of existence of Christ. There, there was not a two person Godhead for three days. That death was a separation of the body from the soul and spirit. The, whether you're dichotomous or trichotomous, I, I'm dichotomous, so I'm viewing it that way. The, that separation is what, is the one aspect of death, and it's, it's the critical aspect that it distinguishes a dead person and a cor, uh, and his corpse from uh, a live person who, in which the spirit inhabits the body. That said, death also involves this, 
is a broader term that involves the suffering associated with death and the pain. And, oh, okay, and so Turton, that's time. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, so Turton, and, and uh, it just so happens that I, I'm just stating this from the outset just to make it clear. I already had a question prepared for Ronnie, the next one, in fact, that touches on that. So um, I, I didn't, I'm not going to ask the next question for Ronnie in response to that. I already had it prepared. Uh, that, that aside, this next question for you, Turton fan, uh, and, and I'm going to, this is not pre-written. I, I came up with this on the fly, so if I stumble, I apologize. But he, he, here it is. Um, you stated that in Revelation 22, the people who go on being sinful are people described as going on being sinful after the judgment of the lake of fire begins. But in the 1599 Geneva Study Bible, uh, in Theodore Bayes' commentary on Revelation 22, he says this of that passage, uh, that it is... Um, that it, uh, lets, let them be harmful to others, let such be more and more vile in themselves, whom this scripture does not please. And he talks about this being an, an, an objection anticipated, but there will be some that will use this occasion for evil and will rest the scripture to their own destruction. So my question for you is, if I'm right, and if I'm, if I'm interpreting Theodore Basic correctly, um, and I think other traditionalists would acknowledge this as well, that Revelation 22.11, um, as Ronnie indicated, refers to people of John's contemporaries. Um, what 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 in the context suggests that we should read that differently? I apologize for the stumbling. You have two and a half minutes uh, now. The the reason is this: the, the phrase immediately before is "for the time is at hand," and the immediately following uh, verse it describes specifically the judgment. It says, "And behold, I come quickly. My reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be." It's it's because of that immediate context that we view these things as, which which we can, and I I submit we should, view these things as referring to the state of man upon judgment, as opposed to the state of man prior to judgment. Uh, Although, you know, certainly if uh, someone wants to try to to make that, uh, you know, exegesis, I'm willing to listen to it, the exegesis. Okay, Ronnie, your one minute uh, follow-up. Uh, sure. Let's go ahead and look at it real quick. Um, so the angel says to him, do not seal the words of the prophecy for the time is near. Um, that's right. It's, the time is near. It says, let the evil do still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still be righteous. Um, I, I guess I just can't see how the fact that he says the time is near, which means it hasn't come yet. It's coming. Um, and then again, Christ says, I'm coming soon, so I, I, I'm not sure. I think I'm just missing what, what he's saying there. Um, it sounds like he's saying, okay, so the judgment is is in the future; it's coming, and therefore the phrase about let the evil still let the evil doer still do evil is also talking about people in the future. Um, maybe I'm missing. I, I just don't see it. I, I could be wrong. I mean, I, I'll. Take a look at this. This is not a passage uh, okay. I really study okay. much in depth. That's so. time. Yep. Um, again, I apologize for the stumbling. Uh, this next question, as I mentioned, was prepared, however, so I should be a little bit more smooth in, in the delivery of it. Ronnie, you quoted MacArthur as saying, no soul, no inner person in any human being ever goes out of existence, which you say is an example of denying that immortality is given only to the elect and that the wicked will die. If Jesus died, as the wicked will after the resurrection, did he go out of existence, as MacArthur, using the language MacArthur used, when he perished on the cross? And if so, was the Son of God fully God and not fully man for three days? No, I, I wouldn't use 
I wouldn't use um, the language of going out of existence. I mean, that's not language that I use. Um, and that was only a part of MacArthur's quote. I'm not saying that everything he said, that the opposite is something um, I would affirm. Um, the, the main point about MacArthur's quote, as a matter of fact, was when he used the expression immortal or immortality twice, because that fit in well with uh, what I wrote, um, or with my argument there. So I, I, I don't describe death as not existing. I don't think scripture defines death as not existing. Again, death is the absence of life. Um, uh, a type of example that might be helpful for some people is Adam before God breathed before God breathed the breath of life into him. So you had Adam. It was this thing made out of clay called Adam, but it was not alive. It was dead um, until God breathed in his life. So you had this thing, Adam, that existed, but it was just dead matter. Um, bringing that to when a person dies, I think the person is dead. They're not conscious. They lack the breath of life. But it's not like they go out of existence or disappear. I mean, I don't think that's helpful language to use. When Jesus died, he was truly dead. He was in the grave. Now, Scripture does say that there was something very unique about Christ's death, that he didn't see decay. And so we can't make a one-to-one correspondence between what happened to Christ when he died and what happens to other people. Scripture is very clear that there was something uh, very unique about his death, that he was... Um, I suppose, preserved miraculously compared to other people. He did not see decay, um, as opposed to, say, uh, Lazarus in the book of John, who was dead three days, and he stank already just in three days. Um, so I hope that answers your, your, your question that you stumbled over so much. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, Turton fan, your one-minute uh, follow-up. I think that the key here is that man didn't exist before God breathed the breath of life into his into his body. That that mere a mere corpse is not a man. Uh, that's one perhaps one difference between Ronnie's explanation and mine. But uh, that without a soul, a body is merely a corpse, not a carcass. It's not a person. So if that counted as human existence, then uh, it seems most strange. And uh, I, otherwise, I'll leave it at that. Okay. Um, my third question for you, Turret and Fan, that I prepared during this debate centers around uh, your reading of Ecclesiastes 3.19, which you read from the King James Version, and admittedly other translations use the word spirit. However, the word ruach uh, in the Hebrew there, um, according to Thayer's lexicon, is translated as wind, breath, uh, uh, you know, breathing breath, wind, that kind of a thing. And, of course, in uh, Genesis 2, God breathes the breath of life into the lifeless, lifeless corpse that is Adam. Uh, a passage which Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 specifically uh, ties to the giving of physical life, not some additional kind of life. In light of that fact, that, that, that man was a lifeless corpse into which God breathed breath, um, why shouldn't we read Ecclesiastes 3, sorry, it was verse, 20, uh, verse 21, as the NASB renders it, which is, who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast descends downward to earth? Why shouldn't we rend- understand it in the NASB's rendering? 
the reason why is as Genesis 2-7, it's not that we just disagree with, uh, necessarily disagree with that. The term for soul or spirit, even in the Greek, is a similar word describing the wind or, or pneuma, for example, is, is one of the words that's used. The, it's not that this breath, uh, description is wrong. The word literally has that, that meaning. The, the semantic range encompasses soul. The reason that we would say that is that in Genesis 2-7, it says, And the Lord formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So I wouldn't, we wouldn't normally call that, that pre-man uh, formation of dust a corpse because it never had a, a human spirit in it. But what God did when he, what made Adam alive is the presence of this uh, soul. So the combination of soul and body is a living man, but m- man became a living soul at that point. Okay, uh, Ronnie, your one minute response. Um, yeah, that's exactly right, Turgeon Van. Man became a living soul. He wasn't given a soul. It's not like the text doesn't say that God, you know, put a soul inside of him. What it says is that you had matter. God animated the matter with his breath or with his um, spirit, and that thing became a living soul. Um, now, I mean, this would take us on a whole uh, dialogue that would be very interesting about uh, how soul is used in the Old Testament, but it really just refers to persons. It doesn't refer to what I think most Christians mean when they say soul, which is some sort of immaterial substance that's kind of the true core person. Um, a soul is a person. So, for instance, in the Old Testament, corpses are referred to as dead souls. Um, it's the same word used, uh, you know, uh, it looks like I'm out of time. So, Okay. Uh, Ronnie, my last question for you, which was actually going to be my third, but I re- rearranged things a little bit, is this. Conditionalists argue that the punishment of hell is death, not suffering. But in response to the challenge of degrees of punishment, some, like Edward Fudge, say that combinations of intensity, type, and duration of suffering allow for degrees of punishment. Isn't it inconsistent to say punishment is death, not suffering, on one hand, but on the other, to explain degrees of punishment by appealing to differences in suffering? Your two-and-a-half-minute response. Yeah, you know, that's actually, that's kind of an in-house debate amongst uh, conditionalists. So um, some conditionalists say, you know, there, there are not degrees of, of kind of prior punishment before um, the, the main punishment of death. Um, so that's an in-house debate. Um, I see the force of that argument. I would just say something along the lines of when uh, first century believers or first century anybody heard the words death or kill, um, they were not imagining something that was quick and painless. Um, they were thinking about an execution, which, and so it was just implied that this would be a painful thing. So I think the actual process of death is part and parcel of the punishment, um, even though the necessary um, and essential punishment, the punishment that will last forever, is the death. Um, but Again, this is this is an in-house debate. Certain conditionalists, um, such as Glenn Peoples, who you're friends with, uh, he disagrees, um, and that's fine. The point, I think, the broader point is just that um, if you ins- 
if you're someone who insists that there must be degrees of punishment, um, that conditionalism can account for that. Um, and I, I do think scripture teaches degrees of, of punishment, but the essential punishment, the necessary punishment, the punishment that everyone will undergo is, is death. Actually being deprived of life forever. Okay, uh, Twitter fan, your one minute response. I think, uh, obviously, to some extent, this is a question that doesn't uh, doesn't re- directly raise uh, address the point I had raised. But it's good that uh, that we've we've had this acknowledgement that the term death is not uh, was not solely understood as the terminus, but also as the process. I think that's a key a key aspect of understanding how something that goes on forever could be considered death, even though that that terminus is not reached because of the fact that it is a, a process, a painful and, and horrible process. Okay. Um, I have one last question for you, Turretin fan, that I, again, sort of prepared on the fly. Um Regarding eternal destruction, and presumably some traditionalists would, would say the same thing about the phrase eternal punishment, uh, you've argued that the destruction likely at, at worst, and perhaps you would even go so far as to say must, refer to the process of destroying rather than um, a one-time act of destruction who's, uh, which is permanent. Now, in Hebrews 5.9 and 9.12, the author seems to use the adjective eternal to describe the eternal result of salvation and redemption. He says eternal salvation, eternal redemption. Uh, but since presumably we will not experience eternal saving or redeeming processes, um, and also in light of the fact that some manuscripts render Mark 3.29 to refer to an, an eternal sin rather than an eternal sinning, in light of these, why must eternal destruction and eternal punishment be understood differently and not as the eternal result of a one-time punishment or destruction? And you have two and a half minutes. Okay, with respect to Hebrews 5.9, the salvation is eternal. It could be eternal in several senses. One sense that it's eternal is that it's from all eternity. uh, It was something that's uh, predestined. It's a it's not it's without a, having a beginning and uh they're they're saved for all time i do understand the, the point that 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 need uh need not entail that the, the process of saving is a process that it, it, that's you know either singly or doubly and non-ended what my point with respect to the eternal destruction is that it's in in view of the other Point about eternal punishment. It's it's reasonable to view this as a destruction that goes on indefinitely. Not that it's mandated, but that it's reasonable. So my my point was not that there's a grammatical rule that it must always refer to an act's duration and not the result of the act, but that that is a reasonable interpretation of it. Okay, Ronnie, your one minute follow up. I don't have much to say to to his answer i mean if he concedes that that's a proper a proper way of understanding the word ionios when it's used with a noun of action like um the ones you mentioned um i don't have much to say so okay great um do any of you do either of you need a break before we go ahead with our closing statements
Uh, I'm fine. Okay. All right. Um, Ronnie, I'll, as soon as you begin speaking, go ahead and start your, t- your 10 minute timer. Okay. Um, well, let's just try to wrap up as, as best as I could remember. I have a terrible short-term memory. I'll try to get everything I can. Um, let's just look at the arguments I presented. My first argument was the scripture does not positively teach um, everlasting torment and that there's no explicit um, mention of everlasting torment. From what I could tell, uh, Turretin Fant concedes that. He, think it's, he thinks it's strained. Um, because he thinks you could do, I, I would call it systematics, and look at one verse where it talks about punishment, and then go, go to some other verse where you're inferring that um, it's talking about um, everlasting torment. Uh, but he never actually showed me a verse that actually explicitly teaches that. So I think that point stands. Now, that doesn't mean that my view is correct. Something could be true without it being explicitly spoken. I've I never claimed otherwise. I just think it's strange that a doctrine that is so uh, vital for people to know would never just be plainly and explicitly stated the way it's stated in Judith, or maybe even more plainly, just say, look, if you don't repent, you you'll be tormented forever. So that was the only point there. Um, Thinking back to the passages he mentioned, um, again, most of them don't even mention torment at all. And I'm not harping on the fact that the word torment is not there. I mean, the word, other synonyms are not there, you know, pain or, or suffering, those are not there either. Um, Matthew 25:46. I, I fully agree with what Matthew 25:46 teaches, that the punishment will last forever. Um, I fully agree with Second uh, Thessalonians one nine that the destruction will last forever. Um, so these don't pose any problem for my view. They do pose a problem for the universalist who must say that actually the punishment will not last forever, um, either the process or the effect, um, or that the destruction they'll have to say that the destruction will not last forever. So, um, but those don't pose any problem for me, and and I don't see that they say anything about torment at all. Um, that's just a very face value reading of the text. Um, again, Isaiah mentions worms and fire, but what are they doing? They're consuming corpses. Unquenchable fire is fire that is not cannot be resisted. It refers to a judgment from God that men can't stop. When God comes against you with unquenchable fire, there's nothing you could do. It's going to do its job, which is to consume. And we looked at a number of verses that just quite literally say that. Uh, with regards to my second argument about immortality, I, uh, you know, I do have a bad memory, but I, I don't recall that Turretin gave much of a substantial response to that at all. Um, he seemed really just to affirm that humans will be immortal. I, I believe he used that expression himself, referring to the passage from Ecclesiastes. Um, but he never actually dealt with all the passages I mentioned. Um, that say the opposite, the, that only the righteous will have immortality. Um, the wicked will not have immortality. Um, I didn't see any sort of um, dealing with those passages. In terms of my last argument, the language of destruction, um, Turretin Fan's general strategy appeared to be to say, well, since other passages seem to teach everlasting, everlasting suffering, you know, when words like destruction and consume are used, they must just 
they're probably just being used in a figurative sense or something like that. Um, now, that's not exegesis. You know, you need to actually look at the passages in question and see what they teach. You can't sit on some other passages that you're already convinced teach something and then use those passages to interpret every single other passage that talks about future judgment. The fact of the matter is, virtually, uh, I don't want to make an overstatement, but the vast majority of passages that speak of future punishment use words like destroy, consume, abolish, perish, and so forth. Um, they don't use words like suffer, uh, torment, pain, agony. Those just are not descriptions that we typically find. Um, you know, the, again, you know, I think it's interesting that he didn't use the two strongest passages, or at least the passages that are most often used: Revelation fourteen eleven, Revelation twenty ten. I mean, at least, at the very least, those passages mention torment. Um, Every single passage he mentioned uh, said nothing at all about torment. And again, I, I don't think he dealt really in a serious way with any of the passages I mentioned, other than to say, well, uh, you know, these must be taken in some figurative sense. Um, which, again, I, I don't think that's good exegetical practice. You, you, we need to look at the context of the passages that we're examining. And we need to look at the grammar, and we need to look at our lexicons and, and see what these words actually mean, what they can mean, and what they mean in a certain context. So again, Matthew 10, 28. It says that God will destroy both body and soul in Gehenna. Well, destroy literally just means slay when it's used transitively of humans. There's no warrant within the passage itself to say, well, um, it actually just means to suffer a, a terrible punishment or something. Well, no, if that's what if that's what Matthew wanted to communicate, that's what he would have said. That's what Jesus would have said. But Jesus was very specific. Both the body and the soul will be destroyed. They will both be slain. The body does not survive when it is killed, and the soul will not survive when it is killed either. Um, the the passages about consumption, again, I think they were just more or less brushed off. They, they really weren't even uh, attempted. He didn't really attempt to take them seriously. So, um, I think conditionalism is, is just vastly more consonant with scripture taken as a whole. I mean, not only are there no passages that teach endless torment explicitly, but there's no pattern of God tormenting people for long periods of time. That's just not something that we see often in scripture. The theme throughout the entire Bible is that sin and evil and unrepentant people are, are wiped out. Um, you know, when God saw how wicked the world was in Noah's day, what did he do? He, he wiped out all the evil people. He didn't subject them to long periods of torment. Um, same with Sodom and Gomorrah. Those people were wiped out. Now, I'm sure being drowned and being burned up is painful. So I'm not denying that there's an element of suffering that's involved. But the point, again, is that God deals with unrepentant sinners by destroying them, not by inflicting pain on them for extended periods of time. Um, think about the, the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant. You know, the message being consumed there is that our sins are being transferred to the animal and the animal is punished in our place. But what happens to the animal? It's slaughtered. It's consumed by fire. It's, you know, the Israelites weren't commanded to, to torture the animals for, for months and years. Now I could go on with examples, you know, from the Old Testament. I don't want to, you know, I don't want anyone to think I'm, I'm trying to present a new argument in the conclusion. I'm not trying to do that. I'm just, what I'm trying to say is that 
traditionalism would be a lot more plausible if there was some pattern of extended torment throughout scripture. But the fact is, it's just not there. Um, conditionalism, on the other hand, is, is truly biblical. It draws on themes that are found throughout scripture, including the Old Testament. Now, I focus on the New Testament because of time constraints, um, but a more full-fledged argument spends considerable about a considerable amount of time in the Old Testament. Uh, just look at the works of, of Leroy Froome and Edward Fudge, for instance. Traditionalism, on the other hand, finds the bulk of its support in a handful of passages in the New Testament, the most important of which are found in Revelation. Um, G.K. Beale, for instance, says that the two passages I mentioned in Revelation are the Achilles heel of conditionalism, which apparently means that those are the only real weaknesses to the view, two passages found in apocalyptic uh, symbolic visions. Um, just to respond to one thing Turretin fans said about death referring to a process and a result. I mean, everyone agrees with that. <laughs> the problem is, if there is no end result, well, then it's not really death. It, 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 it's almost incomprehensible to say that it's a death that lasts forever. I mean, the main point of killing someone is the fact that they will be dead. It's not the pain that's involved with it. You know, that's not the main point, even though that does come along with it. If there's no actual death, then it's not really a death. I know that sounds tautological, but um, I'll just close here. I'm almost out of time by quoting Edward Fudge. This is how he concludes his book, The Fire That Consumes. He says, does the word of God teach the eternal conscious torment of the lost? Our modest study fails to show that it does. Mere assertions and denunciations will not refute the evidence presented here, nor will a recital of ecclesiastical tradition. The case finally rests on scripture, and only scripture can prove it wrong. Um, with all due respect, I, I don't believe that Turretifan has presented uh, any substantive challenge to the, the positive case that I presented in my opening. Um, thank you. Okay, thank you, Ronnie. Uh, Turretin fan, as soon as you begin, I'll go ahead and start your 10-minute timer uh, for your closing argument. All right, we've covered a lot of different ground in this debate, and the four contentions, my my four initial contentions, that there's a judgment coming, will be eternal, it will be conscious, and some will suffer it, I think have survived. We There's some disagreements about the second and third points about it being eternal and, and conscious, but uh, as well, some some contention about whether or not the experience of it will be an experience of suffering. But there's a variety of good reasons why we should consider that it is uh, eternal and uh, painful and conscious. W- one of the reasons is that this is described as an eternal punishment. Eternal normally has the sense of uh, unending. And in a punishment that ends with the death of the punished person uh, does not have that eternal or everlasting quality. It would be a final punishment, but it wouldn't be, uh, it wouldn't seem to be an eternal punishment. And the same thing goes for the everlasting fire that, that exists in this place of torment, this, this hell. Uh, we were told that, uh, one of the weaknesses of the position I had raised is that many of the verses that I raised don't specifically talk about torment. In fact, the main verses I had quoted uh, don't use that term torment at all. Uh, but nevertheless, the fire is a uh, is an unpleasant thing. So that seemed to be enough. And during cross-examination, we raised the point of Luke 16 and the, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man there. But that parable of Lazarus and the rich man specifically describes him as being in 
uh, in Hades or, or in Gehenna, that in the event in, in the afterlife, that he's in this place where the fire is, that this fire is tormenting him. And in fact, the, this, he describes it as this place of torment in Luke 16, 28. Uh, and the, I also had alluded to the parable in Matthew 18, 1834, where it says, and his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. Now, whether that, uh, whether that passage refers to, to the torment of hell or not, uh, we, we see other examples. It's not, uh, it's actually not, uh, uniquely uh, reliant on just this, uh, Luke 16 reference, which I've made, but also even in Matthew 8:29, the, the devil, uh, or devils cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? Referring to before the, the judgment day. So, again, there's there's discussion of torment in the afterlife as as a punishment. And uh, we, we might as well we'll come back to the two main verses, which were actually raised, uh, interestingly enough, by Ronnie, not by me. But... Uh, We'll return to those in, in just a moment to answer his uh, to answer his point that there's no discussion of torment. The uh, the passage I had cited as one of the key passages of this continued existence in the afterlife was Revelation 22:11. Now, as I had mentioned during the cross examination, in the in Revelation 22:11 we have an interesting. Uh, System. So that before and after this verse, we're, we're told that this, the time is at hand in verse 10, and then behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according to his, uh, as his work shall be in Revelation 22:12. Now, one reason for holding this to be a reference to the, the final ju- judgment might be the, uh, you might make a comparison to uh, what Gill cites as uh, the Talmudic uh, commentary on Leviticus 11.43, where he says, if a man defiles himself a little, they defile him much. The gloss on it is, they let or suffer him to be more defiled. If below, they defile him above. If in this world, they defile him in the world to come. If a man sanctifies himself a little, they sanctify him much. If below, they sanctify him above. If in this world, they sanctify him in the world to come. So that's that would sort of be one example of a, you know, an argument as to why Revelation 22:11 might be understood reasonably as referring to the afterlife. But even if we didn't uh, st- stick on that point, as I mentioned, the verses 14 and 15 say, "Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life, and may enter through the gates into the city. For without are dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers and adulterers, and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie." Now these are people who are existing outside the, city, the gates of the city in the afterlife. They're, they're, they're not gone. They, they still exist, they're, but they're outside. And that we, we also, this, uh, the, the fact that the lake of fire is described in Revelation, uh, let's see, the, the second death in Revelation 20, the lake, this death and hell being cast into the lake of fire being the second death, is is that uh, description Revelation 2014, and it seems to be that we were actually conceded that this is the second death, and this is the uh, the end result of the wicked that they uh, they go to this place, and if that's the case, then those two verses that that Ronnie uh, 
himself pointed out, are not only, as he described them, you know, some possible support, but they become much stronger support. For they say, uh, they, the first one uh, simply says the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever. But of course, that's the smoke of their torment. Uh, but the more critical one is the uh, Revelation 2010, where it says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And that ties back to the uh, eternal judgment that's, re- that's prepared for the devil and his angels in the, uh, in the passage which we, we discussed. I believe that was in the second... Uh, Yes, in flaming fire, we see the, uh, maybe I shouldn't, uh, maybe I shouldn't jump there so quickly without pulling it in front of me. Uh, the, 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 it also connects with the passage which describes the, the punishment that's prepared for the devil and his angels being the, uh, the punishment that is shared by unbelievers. So, Yes, I do agree with Ronnie that there's a systematics aspect to this doctrine. It's not a doctrine that's built on a single verse. Uh, it's not built solely on Matthew 25 saying that this is an everlasting punishment, although that is an important verse to this doctrine. The fact that the punishment is everlasting is really a key uh, component, and Without that key, there, there would be much more, it, might, it would be much more plausible that this, uh, this punishment isn't everlasting and that its punishment is simply final. Other than that, the debate seemed to hinge on the fact that terms like death, destroy, consume, abolish, or, and so forth are terms that have a literal fi- sense of finality. Human beings, uh, in fact, are mortal and death is an end. While that's true, uh, some of the implications of that which were raised are not true. For example, killing the body doesn't necessarily, killing a man doesn't necessarily mean destroying the body. In fact, a, a dead man can have a well-preserved body. Jesus' body was dead, it wasn't corrupted, but Lazarus' uh, body, which had begun to stink, was reanimated as well, and all the bodies of the dead will be raised on the last day. The, the, Valley of Dry Bones illustrates an example of bodies being brought back to life without those bodies being entirely destroyed. The death of the body does not necessarily entail the destruction of the body. The body could be well-preserved, as in the case of something like suffocation as as the mode of death or drowning as the mode of death. But in that case, what's key is the separation of body and soul. Now, in the in the resurrection, and there'll be a general resurrection. All men will return to life. So some will return to uh, the resurrection unto life. Some will return to the resurrection unto judgment, unto damnation. And what that entails is that it will be a resurrection unto the punishment. This was understood at the time. That's what the evidence of uh, the parable of Lazarus shows, that people at that time understood that the afterlife for the wicked involved conscious conscious suffering, and uh, I'd rather not rely on Judith. But if any if Judith shows anything to, relevant to this discussion, it shows that there was, uh, as used by Ronnie, I, I haven't investigated it, but as used by Ronnie, it shows that there was also an understanding, e- even without the benefit of the New Testament of of suffering. So, 
I appreciate the, the kind moderation of Chris and uh, for Ronnie's uh, thoughtful and courteous discussion with me as well. Okay, Turton fan, thank you for that. And uh, I just want to say thanks to both of you for participating in this debate. I hope that even though I might be leaning in one direction uh, or the other, I hope that I challenged you a little bit and, and was fair in my moderation. Um, so, yeah, just thank you guys so much. Yeah, thank you, Turton fan. Thank you, Chris, for putting this together. Okay, that concludes the debate between Turton fan and Ronnie Demler. Uh, I'm going to withhold any thoughts until a future episode. Uh, next week, I interview Scott Smith from Biola University on the topic of dualism, and I hope you'll join me for that interview. Until then. Until then.